On January 18, 2008, the Church of Scientology's web servers mysteriously shut down. Anyone trying to reach the organization's main site was met with an error page. People inside the church scratched their heads, but a few observers knew exactly what was happening. This was a coordinated and illegal DDoS attack. That acronym stands for Distributed Denial of Service. An action like this could only be performed by a large network of computers working in concert, meaning someone had ambushed the church's web server and overwhelmed the system intentionally. In other words, Scientology had been raided by internet pirates. But those responsible weren't nearly as flamboyant as a group of high seas freebooters. They were the opposite. The coordinators of this attack were a gang of hackers who'd met in internet chat rooms. A harbinger of the attack had previously surfaced on YouTube. The video appeared to be a press release from a group known only as Anonymous. The clip featured the group's shadowy representative who claimed that Scientology was stifling free speech. Anonymous would retaliate by banning the church from the internet forever. The group didn't succeed in taking Scientology offline permanently, but they did prove that even the wealthiest organizations couldn't protect themselves against digital saboteurs. While this seems like a stunt that could only happen in the internet age, history tells us that's far from the case. Anonymous was inspired by pranks and intrusions that took place well before the web existed. Sometimes the perpetrators had a message, but other times their goal was to cause complete and utter chaos. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we're doing a one-part episode on Max Headroom and the phenomenon of broadcast intrusions. These rare and illegal pranks involve the hijacking of radio or satellite signals with mischievous intent. The most famous of these intrusions occurred in Chicago in 1987. A profane prankster dressed as the character Max Headroom commandeered local airwaves not once, but twice in a single night, setting the stage for today's trolling culture. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nowadays, the internet is home base for alien believers. Between Reddit and YouTube, you can find almost anyone or anything to support the idea of extraterrestrial life. But back in 1977, long before anyone could type UFOs into a search bar, an alien race seemingly found us. It was 5 p.m. on November 26, 1977. A cold Saturday found many families in southern England sitting at home, some perched in front of the TV watching the news. A local anchor, Andrew Gardner, described recent clashes between military and guerrilla soldiers in Rhodesia. But as Gardner continued talking, the television signal grew distorted. Then the sound dropped out. Those at home probably adjusted their antennae or gave their TV a good smack upside the base, which seemed to work because the picture came back, but the audio didn't. As a muted gardener continued his report, oblivious, someone or something spoke over him. The voice was echoing and strange. It introduced itself as Vrilon and claimed to be a representative of something called the Ashtar Galactic Command. Vrilon said that his group, presumably composed of extraterrestrials, had been watching humanity for years. Now, he had a message for the people of Earth. He said that if humanity continued on a warlike path, it would lead to disaster for the fledgling race. So Vrilon proposed a different fate instead. He encouraged people to get rid of their, quote, weapons of evil, end quote. Many felt that this was in reference to nuclear arms. Vrillon went on to say that his race cared deeply about human beings. He encouraged viewers to live in natural harmony with Earth, suggesting that it was the only way toward a brighter future. Then the transmission ended. The next day, England's newspapers weighed in on the event. They implied that the transmission created mass panic, much like Orson Welles' broadcast of War of the Worlds in 1938. But they were wrong. People were far more sensible. Most suspected that this was some sort of prank, although it would have been fairly elaborate to pull off. Breaking into a TV network and hijacking a broadcast midstream was no easy feat in 1977. The Independent Broadcasting Authority, an English regulatory group, agreed. They launched an investigation into the hack, but found no suspects. But there were other telltale clues in the content of Vrillon's speech. Clues that led some to think that this was the work of an organization rather than a single person. 
Many suspected the campaign for nuclear disarmament, or the CND, was behind the hoax. After all, they had a similar message to Vrilon, one of disarmament and peace. The CND was founded by civilians in the 1950s as a way to protest the rise of nuclear armament. In the 1960s, the organization's popularity waned when the Vietnam War took over the headlines. But by the late 70s, the anti-nuclear message had returned. So it's possible that whoever was behind the Vrilon message used this as an opportunity to draw attention to their cause. But to this day, no one has ever taken credit for the hoax. So the connection between Vrilon and the CND is tenuous at best. Although the event did inspire other, more mischievous intrusions, ones that managed to defy new technologies. When it aired in the 70s, Vrilon's message was accessible to anyone tuned in with a television and a receiver. But by the 80s, the method for broadcast distribution was starting to change. The TV industry now offered premium programming through something called cables, giving rise to networks like HBO. Just after midnight on Sunday, April 27, 1986, HBO played a movie called The Falcon and the Snowman throughout the United States. At approximately 12.32 a.m., the picture just disappeared. Instead, a rainbow of bars faded in, containing a short and cryptic message. It read, quote, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime slash movie channel, beware. This text stayed on screen for approximately four minutes. Then the feed was cut, and the Falcon and the Snowman resumed. But what did it all mean? Well, in the years before this attack, enthusiasts who owned a satellite dish were able to access premium cable channels like HBO for free. But when HBO wised up to this, they scrambled their signals so that hobbyists with dishes couldn't steal the feed with their own equipment. This baffled a lot of people with satellite dishes. They felt that since they'd paid for their own gear, they were entitled to free broadcasts. And they were angry. Angry enough for someone masquerading as Captain Midnight to interrupt HBO's entire transmission with his protest. The event made news across the country. Many wondered how the captain had been able to hack into HBO's feed and interrupt their programming. It certainly wasn't an easy thing to accomplish, and it made the television powers that be furious. HBO was out for blood. They worried that Captain Midnight might inspire numerous imitators and drive paying customers away. The network needed to find Captain Midnight and prosecute him immediately. They urged the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, to investigate this signal hijacking. They even enlisted the FBI for help. The federal inquiry ran for three months, but Captain Midnight couldn't stand the pressure for long. He knew he couldn't afford a costly trial. It would be better for him to step forward and lift his metaphorical mask. Captain Midnight revealed himself to be a 25-year-old average Joe from Florida. His name was John McDougal, and he was ready to plead guilty. 
Coming up, Captain Midnight sets the stage for the most notorious intrusion to date. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In the mid-20th century, technology gave rise to a new phenomenon called broadcast hacking. This technique allowed pirates like Captain Midnight to reach people with unauthorized messages. But it threatened the finances of large corporations like HBO, who were ready to fight back. When John McDougall revealed himself as the man behind Captain Midnight, it actually elevated his anti-authoritarian message which was exactly what the powers that be didn't want. So they upped their use of inflammatory rhetoric. In the aftermath of the intrusion, an executive named Stephen Schulte accused Captain Midnight, or rather John McDougal, of, quote, video terrorism. At the time, Schulte was the vice president of Showtime, a premium channel that was both a competitor and an imitator of HBO. Any threat against HBO was also a threat against their own bottom line. And it didn't help that Captain Midnight had warned Showtime specifically in his illegal message. The cable channels may have seen McDougal's message as a threat, but not everyone felt that way. Some people viewed him as a folk hero. Those who used personal satellite dishes to pirate content had been incensed when channels like HBO began scrambling their feeds, making it impossible for them to tune into special programs. For a lot of people, McDougal was their Paul Revere, and his broadcast hack was their midnight ride. In reality, McDougal had other motives behind the protest. He owned a satellite dish company in Florida. When HBO cut off free access, it hurt McDougal's business big time. Still, the FCC didn't care that McDougal's livelihood had been disrupted. In their eyes, he was a criminal, one who needed to be made an example of. For his sentence, Captain Midnight was fined $5,000 and given a year's probation. Big corporations were surprised by McDougal's relatively minimal penalty. 
To them, this was barely a slap on the wrist. Perhaps that's why months later, the U.S. Congress passed a new law. It was called the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986, and it specifically targeted the crime that McDougal had committed. Going forward, anyone who hijacked a privately owned network satellite would be charged with a felony instead of a misdemeanor. But the law did little to deter people like Captain Midnight, because a year later, the airwaves fell victim to an even more notorious prank. It was a cold November night in Chicago. Sports commentator Dan Roan was reporting live on Channel 9. Roan was describing the Chicago Bears' 30-10 victory over the Detroit Lions that day. But just as he was covering the football game's biggest highlights, the signal began to flicker. Then, the screen went black. A new figure faded in. Unlike the disembodied voices or cryptic messages in the past, this intruder was in the flesh. And he was silent. The person was hunched over, wearing the rubber mask of a blonde man with sunglasses. He was dressed in a cheap brown suit. Behind him, a crude piece of corrugated metal spun in a hypnotic twirl. The whole thing was strange, to say the least. At the time, anyone who was well-versed in obscure British television would have recognized the mask. It was that of a fictional character named Max Headroom, a computer-generated AI and star of the Max Headroom Show. Whoever was behind that mask demonstrated two things. One, they were a fan of British oddball humor. And two, they knew how to do some difficult and illegal signal hijacking. To give you some perspective, Channel 9's feed was broadcast from the John Hancock Center, a hundred-story tall skyscraper. In order to override that signal, someone would need to have a powerful enough transmitter aimed at this tower. So as Max Headroom bounced around on screen in silence, technicians at WGN's studio scrambled to put a stop to the hack. At last, one of the channel's engineers realized the only way to end the intrusion was to change the frequency the station was broadcasting on. Suddenly, Max Headroom disappeared from the screen and Dan Roan returned. The sports anchor, who'd clearly been told about the intrusion, laughed nervously. Then he told his viewers that he was just as confused about the interruption as they were. The whole affair lasted under a minute and it would have been a small item in the next day's paper if that was all that happened in Chicago that night. But it wasn't. A few hours later, Max Headroom struck again. This time, the victim was Chicago's Channel 11, a wholesome PBS affiliate. That evening, the network was broadcasting an episode of Doctor Who, a popular science fiction series. As late-night fans of the show tuned in, the image of their beloved characters dissolved and Max Headroom took their place. This time, things were a bit different. Now the hacker had audio. Bewildered viewers watched as the masked figure uttered nonsensical and unsettling phrases. He vaguely mentioned a Chicago sportscaster named Chuck Swirsky, 
a 1960s cartoon named Clutch Cargo, and Coca-Cola. Perhaps because the real Max Headroom was the soda's spokesperson at the time. And if that wasn't strange enough, the hacker waved around a sex toy. Soon, the camera cut and a new scene began, indicating that the hacker had pre-recorded this bizarre presentation. In this new angle, the figure in the mask bent over, exposing his naked buttocks. Then, a second person entered the frame. It appeared to be a woman in a dress, although she was partially off screen. Regardless, she proceeded to spank Max Hedrum's bare derriere with a fly swatter. Meanwhile, Max continued to yell some pretty ludicrous things. Then, his voice turned into a scream, and the transmission cut out. The Doctor Who broadcast returned to Chicago Airwaves with the show's titular character musing about electricity. The whole thing was oddly synchronistic, but the network didn't feel that way. Channel 11's phones rang off the hook with confused viewers. The next day, reports about the intrusion appeared in local papers. Journalists speculated that Max Hedrum would be caught and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. However, many citizens felt that the whole thing was a harmless prank. But the local and federal governments disagreed, as did the television networks. They were anxious about what innocent viewers might see if other, more profane pranksters hacked their feeds. As a result, the FCC and the FBI publicly vowed to track down the perpetrator and bring them to justice. A spokesman for the FCC reiterated the consequences for a crime like this. A maximum monetary penalty of $100,000, one year in jail or both. Max Headroom was in big trouble. If only they could find him. The FCC's lead investigator at the time was a man named Dr. Michael Marcus. And his first step was to understand how a TV network broadcasts its signal across a city and how someone could have disrupted it. Back in 1987, this process was relatively simple. First, a channel had to beam its signal to transmitters stationed atop any centrally located towers, be they radio antennae or skyscrapers. Then, a customer tuned their TV to that channel picking up the broadcast directly from said transmitter. Like magic, the image would appear on screen in their living room. Voila, entertainment. But if a signal pirate wanted to get in the middle of that, it wasn't too hard. According to Marcus, Max Headroom didn't need expensive or large equipment to broadcast his own feed. All it took in a flat city like Chicago was the roof of a mid-sized building. Marcus surmised that the hacker went to this hypothetical roof and aimed his equipment at TV receivers, which would have been stationed on towers in downtown Chicago. After that, he transmitted his signal with enough power to temporarily overwhelm Channel 9 or 11's signal. Metaphorically, it was like Max Headroom had the brighter flashlight. Marcus believed this was a relatively simple crime, especially for someone with the right gear and technical know-how. Knowing that, he wondered, where did Max Headroom's broadcasts originate? Using triangulation and good old-fashioned math, Marcus figured out the signals most likely came from the northern part of Chicago. 
Of course, that was a huge area, and it wasn't possible to narrow down the suspects with that one clue. So Marcus turned his attention to another detail, the spinning metal backdrop that Max Headroom used. It seemed to resemble a warehouse door. This led Marcus to believe the video might have been filmed in a semi-industrial depository. Now, all he had to do was search through warehouses in northern Chicago and see if, perhaps, someone in the broadcast community had taken a lease out on one. But by the time Marcus landed on this lead, the FCC's appetite for the investigation had cooled. After all, this was a victimless crime, and the agency had already exhausted enough money and resources trying to find the perpetrator. It was time to put it to bed. As a result, Marcus never found his man. Max Headroom had gotten away with a felony. But the public was just getting started on their own investigation. Coming up, we scour the internet for the true identity of Max Headroom. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In 1987, a broadcast pirate in a Max Headroom mask perpetrated the most notorious signal intrusion to date. But the authorities lacked enough evidence and willpower to ferret out a suspect. That hasn't stopped amateurs from trying to solve the case on their own. A report on a website called Unresolved named one candidate that was of particular interest, an artist and musician named Eric Fournier. Fournier was born in 1967, 19 years before the Max Headroom intrusion. He was raised near Bloomington, Indiana, just a few hours south of Chicago, Illinois. In his youth, Eric was regarded as bright and creative with an odd sense of humor. In the mid-80s, he played in a few punk rock groups who performed in Chicago regularly. Around the time of the intrusion, one of Fournier's bands called The Blood Farmers apparently borrowed some broadcast equipment from a local TV network. Supposedly, they wanted to make a music video. The bandmates told other friends that after they were done, they planned to release their recording illegally over the airwaves, but the band got cold feet. They realized that hijacking a signal to broadcast their amateur music video would immediately expose them as the perpetrators. After all, they'd be starring in it. So according to rumor, they formulated a plan B. They felt they should do something with the AV equipment they borrowed. This new project would be purposefully unsettling. 
For Eric Fournier, it was a dream creation, a brainchild that led to the Max Headroom broadcast. Fournier never claimed authorship, but over the years, rumors that it was him grew exponentially, largely because of the art he made later in life. In the mid-1990s, Fournier left the punk rock scene to create surrealist art videos. In these works, he played a character named Shay St. John, a fashion model that had been disfigured in a car crash. As the years went by, Fournier made dozens of short, chaotic clips as St. John. Then, in the early 2000s, he started uploading them to LiveJournal, a social networking site that acts as a digital diary. From there, his macabre video art conjured a cult following. In his role as the maimed model, Fournier twitched around the scenes, talking in a disturbing, high-pitched voice. In most of the pieces, the plot was thin to non-existent. Instead, the focus of the videos was the avant-garde style of editing and Fournier's bizarre acting. As the videos gained traction on the web, many noted their similarities to the Max Headroom broadcasts. Both creations featured surrealist humor and a hyperactive character with a disturbing voice. Once people realized that Fournier was in Chicago at the time of the signal intrusions, well, internet sleuths were certain they'd found their man. But those who knew him say otherwise. Fournier died in 2010 of causes related to alcoholism, so he can't respond to these rumors himself. However, someone did manage to track down a man named Harry Bergen, a former member of the Blood Farmers. Bergen addressed the Max Headroom rumors head on. In fact, he used an expletive to describe the idea that Fournier had anything to do with it. In short, Bergen thought it was nonsense. He claimed that in 1987, Fournier wouldn't have had the technical know-how to execute a broadcast intrusion. Plus, according to Bergen, they didn't actually have any AV equipment. That was just a rumor. Although he did say that Fournier would have been amused by the idea of being the anonymous hacker. Fournier wasn't the internet's only suspect. In 2010, a Reddit user named Bpogue unmasked their own theory involving two Chicago brothers. They claimed to have met these brothers in the Windy City in 1987. It was at a late night gathering in a small apartment. The Reddit user was in their early teens, and they were excited to hang out with a group of older kids from the Chicago computer hacking scene. These were the sort of people who felt at home with each other, oddball nerds interested in things like Monty Python and The Lord of the Rings. But there were two figures in particular that the Reddit user developed a fascination with, brothers whose given pseudonyms are J and K. J in particular seemed peculiar. He's described as having a strange sense of humor and boundless energy. And that night, mutual friends were overheard talking about Jay. They said he was planning to do something big. Our Reddit user was unable to determine what exactly the big thing was. They could only gather that it was illicit. But later that evening, some of the friends grabbed a late night dinner at Pizza Hut. As they sat chatting, it was offhandedly suggested that they should all watch Channel 11 later that night. 
The Reddit user claims they forgot about these instructions moments after they were given. Instead, they went home no longer thinking about the two brothers, J and K, or the big thing they had planned. But they did flip on the TV out of habit. And they did catch the infamous Max Headroom broadcast intrusion as it happened live. For reasons they can't explain, they didn't put the clues together at the time that this could have been the brothers doing. This took years. But once they did, they realized Max Headroom was actually J and K. It had to be. So this person posted their theory on Reddit, and they got some interesting responses. Another Reddit user wrote in to corroborate the description of J and K as nerdy brothers interested in pranks. However, this person didn't say whether they thought the brothers were involved in the illegal broadcast. Meanwhile, this theory gained attention outside of Reddit. As a result, the Max Headroom intrusion was brought back into the public lexicon. And as the years passed, the original Reddit user continued their own investigation. They even traveled to Chicago to interview some AV professionals. What they found surprised them. It seemed that their initial theory was impossible. It couldn't have been J and K after all. They learned that in 1987, the equipment that would have allowed an amateur to hijack a professional full-length broadcast didn't exist. An ordinary person wouldn't have access to anything powerful enough to override a network broadcast. And yet, Max Headroom managed to do so, meaning the only option left was that this was an inside job. Television professionals confirmed that whoever Max Headroom was, he was almost certainly a Chicago broadcast professional, or at least he was closely tied to one. That's the only way he could have had access to the equipment and the technical know-how to pull off the hijack. But that's about as much as could be concluded. And since these posts on Reddit, no other convincing suspects have been brought to light. It seems Max Headroom's trail has gone cold. As for theories of our own, well, we agree that the most likely culprit was a Chicago broadcast professional of some kind. Perhaps they were a disgruntled employee. Maybe they were just looking to have some fun. Or maybe they were just a twisted fan of Max Headroom. But the perpetrator remains as mysterious as the day they burst onto the airwaves, and their only motive appears to be utter chaos. As is the case with most hackers, their power depends on their anonymity, as does the longevity of their message. That is, if they have a message. Regardless of who was behind the mask, the Max Headroom intrusion has inspired legions of so-called trolls and hackers, Today, their playground of pranks just happens to be the internet. Among these groups is Anonymous, the same organization who managed to disable the website of a wealthy and powerful religion. In doing so, Anonymous reached millions all around the world, far more than Max Headroom did that November evening in Chicago. Today, all you need to deliver your message across the planet is a computer. The table set by Vrilon, Captain Midnight, and Max Headroom now has legions of internet hackers pulling up a chair. 
and their pranks show no sign of stopping. Maybe, if you're lucky, you'll even witness one for yourself. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on broadcast intrusions, amongst the many sources we used, we found the article on the Reddit user... We now interrupt this podcast with a message from the Ashtar Galactic Command. Be still now and listen, or your chance may not come again. All your weapons of evil must be removed. The time for conflict is now past, and the race of which you are a part may proceed to the higher stages of its evolution if you show yourselves worthy to do this. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Nicholas Zwart, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.